Would you please join me as I pray? Gracious God and Father, we come this morning and to this moment desiring to hear from you. And I'm really grateful that you are a God that speaks. You have spoken authoritatively in this word that has been preserved for us by the Holy Spirit. We come this morning wanting to receive all that you have spoken and intended for us today. And I'm praying particularly, God, for the places in our lives that maybe we're in today, and if not in today, we'll be in one day, where it feels like the bottom drops out, where it feels like everything is coming undone. I thank you that you have a strong word for what does it look like for us to to flourish even in those moments. And I pray that you would secure that in us and help us to be the sort of people that weather storms beautifully. We're asking for that grace today to be imparted through this word. Would you do it? We look forward to the ways that you will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was surprised uh, because I'm a thin-blooded Houstonian that like on a day like today is, uh, struggles to get my fingers warm. Um, I was surprised when I was talking to a friend that was from Minnesota and was explaining to me that in their car they always have to have their emergency kit. Now, if you've grown up in the South like me, largely been in the South, this may be news to you as well. It was news to me that you just can't go out uh, cruising around town without making sure that you've got the chains for your tires, a blanket, a way to heat the vehicle if if things go sideways, some flares, because when you're regularly in negative 10, negative 15 degree weather and a storm can come up out of nowhere, your car getting stranded or not starting isn't just an inconvenience, it's life and death. And so they carry an emergency kit with them recognizing that this is very dangerous territory. And this morning, as we continue in our our journey with Daniel, in many ways, Daniel chapter 2, I believe, delivers for us the exile's emergency kit. We established last week that we're dealing with exilic living, that we as a people currently live far from home. It's part of our identity in the New Testament, that we are exiles, sojourners, and aliens. And we're looking back to a time in history when Daniel and his friends were living as physical exiles in Babylon away from Israel. And while in Babylon they, are, they have kind of established their footing through chapter 1 and figured out what does it look like to live far from home. But this week inserts another layer. It's not just living far from home, but living far from home when everything feels like it's coming undone. What does it look like for us to be the sort of people that, that flourish far from home even when all hope seems lost? Let's see if we can make sense of this together because I think God's going to deliver to us the, the exile's emergency kit this morning. I want to explore it together. First off, what do I mean when I say when all seems hopeless, when the bottom drops out? When the car careens into the ditch and the icy weather and the cold is setting in. Let me tell you what that looked like for Daniel and his friends. You just heard it read in verses 1 through 6, but it says in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. 
and his spirit was troubled, and his, sp- and his sleep left him. The king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell him his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king, and the king said, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dreams, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to, the, to them, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you receive from me gifts, rewards, great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. We're starting to get a sketch of Nebuchadnezzar. Starting to understand a little bit about this young man that has just become king. We read in this text that he's two years into being king, and he has inherited a very impressive kingdom from his father. And we're starting to realize, I I think he's a little bit anxious about it. Nebuchadnezzar is a young guy that has a lot of responsibility, a lot of authority. In verse 1, it actually says dreams in the plural. What we're realizing is that this Nebuchadnezzar has twisted, sweaty sheets night after night. The man can't sleep because he has a recurring nightmare. That by the end of the text, we're going to learn is a nightmare about an enormous statue that gets smashed to pieces and the dust is blown away. Enormous statue of, of a man with a golden head, as it were. And we don't know what all is going on in Nebuchadnezzar's head, but this dream was very unsettling to him. Perhaps thinking that he's going to be assassinated, or perhaps thinking that he's going to mislead Babylon and this kingdom's going to crumble. Whatever it is... Night after night, he is being awakened, unrest as a young leader with an enormous amount of pressure on his shoulders. And now, all of a sudden, this king, who also happens to be a megalomaniac and very violent, when you have an anxious, young, overworked, irrational, megalomaniac leader who is also violent, this is a dangerous equation. He pulls in all his leaders and he makes outrageous demands and he says, you will be torn limb from limb if you can't tell me what I've been dreaming at night. Now, as we read, I I won't read all of this chapter to you. I encourage you, if you haven't yet, to do so. I'll I'll fill in with some storytelling. I'll just say in the verses that follow, there's a lot of unrest, as you might imagine. People are running around, they're spreading the word, and finally the word gets to Daniel and his companions, and I have to imagine that for Daniel and his companions, they have spent the last three years getting established in a distant land like we talked about last week. They've resolved not to be defiled, they have exceeded in their studies, and they finally have found some level of stability after having been driven away from their home and living distant from everything that is comfortable or normal. And now it has to feel a little bit like, I've been so faithful, God, I've been praying, I've resolved not to be defiled, and now here I am, far from home, and now this. The bottom is dropping out, everything is on fire, the car is careening off the road, whatever the analogy is, this feels hopeless if you're Daniel and his companions and one of the wise men in the courts of the king. And I think if we're going to receive what this text has to deliver to our souls, we have to situate our minds and our hearts in that space together. The last time you thought, and now this? Like on top of everything else, this too? 
That place where you feel like this is hopeless. This is heartbreaking. This is not what I signed up for. I was sitting with a friend this week that was considering leaving their job because they said it's just one thing after another. What my boss demands, he is so focused on himself, he is so unfair to his employees, and each time the next thing comes, I just think, and now this. Where is it in your life that you're tempted to to just end up in this posture going, really? This too? This spot is where Daniel and these men are living. And it's not just an inconvenience. They've been told their limb will be torn from their limb. Unsettling news, right? This is overwhelming, hopeless. And what I want us to see is how they respond. And uh, in our, our time together, what I want to explore is five things that have to be in the exile's emergency kit. In the now this sort of moment. If you've been around, you know that I'm, I'm partial to the good three-point sermon. Uh, we're going for five points in a 46-verse chapter, 49-verse chapter. So uh, hang on. We're going to go kind of quick. I'm going to try not to keep you all day. But let's talk about the five things that have to be in the exile's emergency kit. The first thing is this. When the bottom drops out and everything feels like it's on fire, we have to have strong theology. We have to have strong theology. Look at verse 16 with me. This is when the word finally reaches Daniel. And it says that Daniel went in and he requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now the important thing to note here is Daniel does not yet know what the dream is or what its interpretation is. Daniel just caught news that all of the wise men's heads are on the chopping block right now. And he says, okay, uh, send a message to the king. Let him know that I just want an appointment because I'll come and tell him what the dream is. Now, what is it that allows Daniel to respond with this sort of confidence and boldness to go, just go ahead and put me on the calendar. I'm coming with an interpretation, something that he doesn't yet have access to. What we find throughout the whole book of Daniel, and certainly throughout this whole text, is that Daniel has a really strong, robust theology that undergirds all of his activities. We're going to see it in a few moments, examining verses 20 through 23. He's going to say things like, God, you set up kingdoms and you tear down kingdoms according to your times and your seasons. By the time we see the vision itself, it is going to reinforce that message. And what Daniel is going to be confirming for the king is that God is in control over all that happens in all the kingdoms of the world over centuries and millennia. It's all according to God's plan. Daniel is able to respond appropriately when everything feels like it's on fire because he knows that God is over the fire. God is over the accident. God is over the bottom falling out. The question for me is this, how big is your God? Truly. A.W. Tozer said this, a really helpful note. He says, the most important thing about you, that's quite a phrase, the most important thing about you. Have you ever thought about, what is the most important thing about me? He says, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you hear the word God. And what he means is this, we all that have some relationship with God, maybe you're a seeker today trying to figure out how do I feel about this, maybe you've been committed to God for many years, regardless, when we hear the word God, we conjure some image, there's things that we start to populate that word with, and the question is, are 
are the things that you believe about him, what he has affirmed to be true about himself, or is, is it kind of a construction of your own making? The question is, how big is your God? Because the size of your God functionally in your heart and mind is inversely relation, in relationship to the amount of worry you will experience when the bottom drops out. Where God is functionally small for you, where he's a God that wants to do good things and hopes to be able to answer your prayers, but is just handcuffed by all sorts of difficulties and struggles in the world, that when the bottom drops out, worry is really big because we go, I don't know if God's got this truly. But where God is big, worry is small. We're able to respond quickly and confidently like a Daniel. You see, what the scriptures are going to affirm for us is this. God orchestrates the good and the bad. And at first blush, this feels unsettling until we start to realize that God in his wisdom is able to paint beautiful pictures with dark colors. That the scriptures affirm that the sparrow doesn't fall without God's oversight and knowledge. It says when the lot is cast, that even the number on the die is determined by God. That when Job's story unfolds, what we know is that Job is attacked by the enemy. But even that, Job says and God affirms, was God's doing. Because God actually allowed it to happen in the story with Job, that even the death of Job's children and the destruction of his wealth and the loss of his home was ultimately God's doing for God's purposes when all was said and done. This sort of truth delivered about the character of God, that he is radically sovereign over the seasons of our lives the occurrences that, experience, that we experience, the rise and the fall of kingdoms, the rise and the fall of leaders, whether we voted for them or not, how we feel about the direction of things, the temptation is to start to, to wring our hands and to worry. But for Daniel in this moment where it feels like all hope is lost, what he says is, make an appointment with the king. What he says is, God sets up kings. Nebuchadnezzar's not in control, God is. Got to sit with a friend over New Year's that's experiencing one of the most devastating seasons in his life. And he said to me, I have received a gift from God. It is, it is wrapped in barbed wire. And it's really painful. But I know my father. And I'm going to wait because I know it's a gift from him. You see, Daniel is willing to lean in because his God is really big. And I would just invite you that we actually need to be a people that do the work of laying a strong foundation for our theology, thinking deeply about God. This is not just an academic pursuit. It becomes very functional when the bottom drops out on you. Maybe this is, allow this to be an invitation to jump into systematic theology with us. We'll be teaching that starting soon. It's a worthy endeavor because it becomes the buoy to our souls when it feels like the cold is setting in and we're looking for our emergency kit. Well, the first thing is strong theology. God must loom large in our sight. The second is this, a wisdom palette. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me and let me explain 
Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So the, the word is arriving with, to Daniel, and he declares to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Now, the text specifically says this was full of discretion, wisdom. The word in an Aramaic, which this portion of the text is actually written in, is ta'aim, and the word literally means to taste, to taste. The word for wisdom or prudence here is to taste, and the idea is that Daniel has this palate that has grown accustomed to being able to discern what is wise in a moment. I love watching my wife Ashley. She, she loves to bake, and when she's in the kitchen, she'll sometimes be working on something, and she'll say, taste this and tell me what it needs. Uh, she doesn't really ask that question much anymore because I never know. I'm like, uh, uh, what do you think? And she'll usually say, I think it needs a little more salt, maybe some vanilla. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds right. Um, and what my wife knows, she's got this really developed palate where she'll know it just needs a little pinch of this. It needs something. And at the end, I'm always like, this is perfect. I couldn't taste what you could taste, but you have actually developed the ability to do that. It's like the sommelier that tastes the wine and goes, hmm, hints of shoe leather. And you're like, I could have sat with that wine all day long and I was never coming up with that, you know? There's this developed palate where you're able to articulate what, what's happening under the surface, what's there in the flavor. And this is the way that wisdom is described. You see, last week we saw that Daniel was prayerful. He had resolved not to be defiled. He doesn't respond to the anxiety of the moment that everyone is anxious. We're all going to be torn limb from limb. And Daniel goes, now why is this such an urgent situation? You get this sense that he's not participating in the group unrest because he has developed a palate for wisdom that responds slowly, prayerfully, that observes and considers from multiple angles. And the truth is, as an exile far from home, when everything all of a sudden starts to feel like it's on fire and the danger is rising, a strong theology has to be in place. And what it begins to give birth to is a wisdom palate that goes, this tastes like we need to take a beat. Hey, it feels like everybody's losing their mind right now. Maybe we need to take a deep breath, pray, consider this from a different angle. You see, Daniel has a palate to discern what is wise. It reminds me of the story told of two men in the midst of a battle. And as in the Civil War, cannonballs were flying. Everybody was running, terrified. And there were two men, as the story goes, that were standing calmly on the battlefield. And they turned and they locked eyes and one walked over to the other. And he said, sir, what is the chief end of man? To which the other replied, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And man number one smiled and said, I knew you were a Westminster man. Meaning, I knew that you have been soaked in the truths of this catechism. That when all everyone else is running and thinking everything is coming undone, those that are poised and calm have sunk their roots down into something different. You see, Daniel has a wisdom palette where you feel like the anxiety is rising and things are most coming undone. God must loom large and you must move slow. 
Take a deep breath. Pay attention. Wait to figure out what the wisdom response is rather than immediately reacting to the anxiety in the system. The third thing that must be present in the in the exile's emergency kit is a prayerful community. Look at verses 17 through 19. It says, Daniel went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. He told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed and the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. I love that Daniel leaves from this moment having already gotten an appointment with the king. He comes and he gathers these men that are living on the edges of society with him. They're willing to be on the edges because they're so committed to a king that is high above Nebuchadnezzar. And from that place on the edges, they call out to God. And then while Daniel is slobbering on his pillow, God answers. I love that after they pray, Daniel goes to sleep. He's like, well, that's been taken care of. I'm going to bed. And then God shows up. I was talking with a friend this week working through a really difficult life circumstance. And I was so encouraged to hear them say, over the last year, through lots of difficulty, when things are at their lowest, I always just text my house church. And they immediately respond, praying, I'm with you in this. What can I do? And, and they said, you know, I've, I've experienced a certain amount of joy and peace as, as things maybe aren't totally resolved, but God is hearing. God's tending to me. This is the joy of having a prayerful community because when the bottom drops out, God must loom large. We must have this wisdom palette and we need others that are quickly flooding in, meeting us in that place on the edges to pray and to hold us up. Isn't it amazing that Daniel is asleep, resting, having God tend to him while Nebuchadnezzar with all the power, the king of the world, can't sleep with twisted and sweaty sheets. That knowing the God of all is beginning to produce calm in the midst of unrest, that all the money and all the wealth and all of the the position can't deliver. Daniel knows a peace because he is a part of a praying community. You see, he has strong theology, a wisdom palette, a prayerful community. The fourth thing is this. He engages in private praise. And I want us to feel just how powerful this is. Look at verses 20 through 23 with me. It says this, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Those of you who have your Bibles open, you'll see that this text shows up different in your Bible, uh, that it actually is set aside. Uh, It's actually poetry or a song. This is where Daniel becomes a musical. Daniel wakes up in the morning and he, he just kind of bursts into song. He says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. These verses set aside in this way as poetry or song, this is a tool in Hebrew narrative that helps deliver what is the main point of the whole story. So if you're reading a story and embedded in it is a song like this or poetry, it's, it's the author setting off for you, here's the point. 
And this is the point of the whole thing. Here's Nebuchadnezzar with hidden dreams he can't make sense of, but Daniel is able to because ultimately the point is this. God is over all of the kings and the kingdoms of the world. And the vision itself is going to reinforce this message. This is the heart of it. God is the one with all wisdom and understanding and insight. There is no darkness with with this God. His light breaks into every shadowy place. And as Daniel is singing this song, what I want us to feel that is so beautiful is this. There is still immense pressure in the system. The pressure has not been relieved. Daniel knows the vision But the vision is incredibly unsettling. As we're going to see, it is this this word that all of the kingdoms of the world are ultimately going to be smashed into dust and blown away. And he is dealing with a megalomaniac, violent king who has already threatened to tear people limb from limb. And now he has a word that he has to go deliver to Nebuchadnezzar that all the kingdoms of the world are going to turn to dust, O king. When he wakes up and has the vision It's not just all roses and ease. But the beauty is this. He praises from that point. He's aware that God is in control and he starts singing. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this truth that when the bottom is dropping out for you, when you are in the midst of your great trying moment, the invitation It's to go back to your theology and make sure that your your roots are firm. Have that wisdom palette that slows you down and discerns what does a response rather than a reaction look like here. Get your community praying, but then this is true of us, that we have to be the sort of people that praise in the face of pressure, not just after it is relieved. That we actually, it, it, it may be that you need to go home and close the door and sing and dance to God in the midst of your challenge because worship is a weapon. It is power in the hands of a worshiping community to say, I praise God even in the midst of the tension, even in the midst of the emergency, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. It buoys us and strengthens us and prepares us to keep moving even when we feel like this is an emergency. You see, Daniel praises before the pressure is resolved. Private dance and worship party in the face of pressure will do great good for your soul. You see, here is this exile's emergency kit and there's one final really crucial part of it. The fifth is this, humble proclamation. Humble proclamation, a restatement of ultimately what is true. Let's look at this in verses 26 through 30. Daniel finally ends up before the king, and this is what he says. The king declares to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came the thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries and made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, 
but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel had this incredible opportunity before the most powerful man on the planet to seize a platform for his own prominence, for his own popularity, for his own benefit. And in this moment, he goes, King, I have an answer, but not because I'm better than anybody. I don't have wisdom and insight, but there is a God who can make known your visions. And for that reason, let me declare to you your dream and its interpretation. Daniel goes on to make the vision plain that there is a statue with a head of gold and a chest and arms of silver and the midsection of bronze and feet of iron and clay. And he said, you saw this statue, O king. And then there was a a stone that was not cut by human hands that came and struck the feet of this statue and it crashed down into dust and was blown away by the wind. And he says, you, O king, are the head of gold. And your kingdom is a head of gold. And there will be other kingdoms that come after you that are not as great as you. They will be inferior to you. But listen, O king, all of these kingdoms, this this progression of the kingdoms through the generations will ultimately be reduced to dust and be blown away because this rock not cut by human hands will strike its feet and then swell into a massive mountain. This will be a kingdom that lasts for all times. You see, Daniel announces this message to to Nebuchadnezzar who blesses him for it. This is what has been keeping him awake at night. And he, he blesses and promotes Daniel. And Daniel brings his three friends with him. Daniel remains in the king's courts. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are each given provinces to oversee. And we get to the end of the story. The men that were on death row are now in a prominent position. They have been exalted because of this message being declared humbly and clearly by Daniel. This message leads to Daniel's exaltation. That's not all it does. It actually leads to the booing of the souls of God's people for generations to come. As generation after generation comes, they would look back to Daniel and go, do you remember that God said the kingdoms were going to progress in this way? Most scholars would agree that the kingdoms show Rome and Medo-Persia and Greece, or pardon me, Uh, Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome in that order following after Babylon and they were able to trace back and go God said that it was going to unfold like this God is God over history and in subsequent generations where the people were oppressed they were able to look back to this word this humble proclamation of this word led to the exaltation of Daniel and the booing of the souls of God's people for generations and the truth is the content of this vision will lead to the booing of your soul and your exaltation as well. Because the vision that is delivered ultimately is painting a picture of a a small stone that is going to enter the system, not cut by human hands, that's going to cause all other kingdoms to crumble. And when Jesus was heralded by Gabriel to Mary... He says there's one coming that is of divine origin. This is not by human doing. A small stone, not cut by human hands, as it were, is going to be born to you, and his kingdom will last forever and ever. Daniel may very well be being quoted by Gabriel in that moment. That 
this kingdom without end, not cut by man's hands. It will be miraculous and small. And then it's so interesting that at the end of Jesus's life, just on the night before he was going to be crucified, he looks at his followers and he says, take heart for I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world and its kingdoms and its powers and its structures. Isn't this interesting? Because Jesus doesn't with a with an iron fist, crush the kingdoms of the world. But we, what we see the next day is that he receives a crown, and it's not as expected. It's a crown of thorns. And he's placed on a throne. It's not the throne that's expected, but it's a cross that he is secured to as the Son of Man is lifted up. Because listen, this stone not cut by human hands, he displayed that it's the power of, of love that destroys the love of power. And Jesus comes and exposes the love of power that has held together the kingdom of men. And all of a sudden what happens in his death and his subsequent resurrection, it starts to cause cracks and fissures in the ways that we have thought about power and the way that it works. After his ascension, the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts 2. And what Jesus initiated and became the the early church, his only swelled and swelled, becoming a massive mountain throughout time that is going to outlast every kingdom of this world. You see, this vision is intended to buoy your soul in the moments where you feel like all is on fire. We rehearse what is true with strong theology going, I am a part of a kingdom that is going to last forever. All others will crumble. And as our eyes are on Jesus and we rehearse our theology, we will finally be able to be a people with wisdom and a prayerful community calling out to this God that knows that he's working in the midst of the unrest. And as we do, we will engage in private praise even before the pressure is relieved. We will have the exile's emergency kit as we proclaim this message back and forth one to another, commending the good news of the gospel that the stone not cut by human hands will be the ever-growing mountain, the kingdom that will last for all time. Brothers and sisters, we can flourish far from home even when all hope seems lost. Let me pray.